Kristen. All right, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to wonder who you are or what you're like. You've told us and shown us in your word. And so we pray now just for your help by your spirit uh, to understand these things that we read, to apply them to our lives. Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted and convict us where we need to be convicted? We pray simply that you would do your work in our hearts and in this place today. We come with open hands to receive from you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, go ahead and join me in John chapter 6, verse 16 is where we are this morning. Whether you have a hard copy Bible or want to follow along on your smartphone or device, however you need to get there, John 6, 16 is where we're going to be as we're continuing our sermon series that we've been in for some months now, just walking through the Gospel of John little by little. And we're kind of in a series within a series uh, this week, week two of our provider and provision series where we are five at uh, John chapter 6. It's this beautiful section of scripture. We're spending about five weeks here in John chapter 6 looking at who Jesus is and what that means for us. So this is week two of that. And as you saw, you heard read by Kristen, just a, a short section today. We're looking at five verses. So it's not a lot of content, but we get to dive into it deeply here. The famous uh, priest and theologian, Henry Nouwen, once said this, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Again, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Henry Nouwen highlights the importance of quiet time, alone time with the Lord, solitude. Now again, that might seem like a strange quote to jump in with. After all, the section that we just read was about what? Jesus walking on water, this miraculous event that we're going to get to. So why are we talking about silence and solitude? Well, there's a key detail in the text that we would be wise to not overlook. You see where the story picked up from last week to verse 16 after this miraculous feeding of the multitude, this 5,000 plus size crowd, right? Jesus and the disciples confiscate this little boy's lunch, taking some loaves and some fish and, and make it enough to feed the entire crowd. In verse 16, we hear what happens next. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake and where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. So after the feeding, Jesus sends the disciples on ahead, taking a boat across the lake. But we see what? That he is not with them. So we have to wonder, where was Jesus? You remember verse 15 last week? Kind of the verse we ended on, how Jesus withdraws from the crowd. He sees that they want to take him by force and make him king and, and make him their leader on their own terms. They have some misguided expectations, right, about what it means to be the Messiah, about what Jesus came to do, about his mission. And so he withdraws. 
He goes away by himself for a time. And the parallel account of this passage we find in Mark chapter 6, well, one of the parallel accounts. And in Mark chapter 6, Mark tells us specifically that we are learning with Drew. And while he's alone, he's not just playing with a Rubik's Cube or learning to play a musical instrument. He is spending time in prayer with his father. Jesus is alone with his father in prayer. Now, as you're reading through the Gospels, you will see that that is a regular rhythm, a habit of Jesus, that he would withdraw. He would go off to a quiet, lonely place. He would pray. He would spend time with his father quite regularly. We see this before big events in his ministry, before he calls the 12 disciples, the night before he's up praying with his father. Luke chapter 5 says that he did this often. This was a regular occurrence. Especially, we could even notice, as public ministry and demands for his time increase, it's almost as if we see him spending more time in solitude and silence. And we would maybe expect the opposite, right? In our lives, as things get more busy and hectic, there's more demands on our time, our quiet time, our silence and solitude goes down, whereas for Jesus, it seemed to increase. So he's modeling for us in this a rhythm in the Christian life of prayer, pastor silence, getting alone with God. Pastor John Mark Comer really highlights this idea in a book he wrote called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Fantastic book, and I'm drawing a lot from his work here, but he points out this reality in the rhythm of Jesus. And he also points out how foreign, how strange, how difficult that is for us in the modern world to practice. Right? Isn't our pace of life so fast? Our, our weeks are so busy. Our calendar is so full. We have more to do constantly. We're so busy. We're so hurried. It's so hard for us to slow down and do what Jesus did here, the simple, really not complicated practice of sitting in the quiet with God. But it's hard for us in our modern age. The modern world has brought incredible blessings and comforts, uh, technology, smartphones, the internet, Netflix, you name it, plenty of things that are worth celebrating and helpful, but... One of the downfalls of the modern age that we're navigating is our constant busyness, the constant pull to be on, to do more rather than to rest. The great is a huge problem. Pastor John Oberg puts it this way. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we'll renounce our faith. It's that we'll be, we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. The great danger for many of us, it's not that we're just going to walk away from Jesus entirely and renounce the faith. The danger is that we'll, sure, we'll stay in the church, kind of on the surface, kind of skim the surface, but we'll be so busy and preoccupied and have priorities established elsewhere that we won't really dive into the depths of what it means to know God and walk with Him. 
So our spiritual lives, our souls, our hearts are, are dramatically suffering from this busyness, from this pace of life. And here another quote from John Mark Comer. It says, so many people live without a sense of God's presence through the day. We talk about his absence as if it's this great question of theodicy, right? Where is God? Have anyone felt, where, where is God? Don't always experience the presence of God through my day. Does he care about me? Is he listening? Is he speaking? Is he near? Many of us have felt that. John Mark Comer goes on to say, could it be that with a few exceptions, we're the ones who are absent, not God? Could it be we're the ones who are absent? Do we sit around sucked into our phones, our TVs, or our to-do list, oblivious to God? So I think often we've, we've lost this practice, right? This rhythm of just being with God. The simple practice of a quiet time, opening up our Bible, sitting in our favorite chair, hopefully with a cup of coffee, listening to God, reading his word, spending time in prayer. And so Jesus shows us, you need to do this. He modeled this for us. We see this in the text. And so wouldn't it, wouldn't it be kind of silly to say, you know, I mean, sure, Jesus needed to do that. But, but do you know how busy I am? Like, I know Jesus needed it, but I, I can get by without it. Right? Isn't it. That'd be kind of a silly thing to say, right? And yet, often, we say that with our actions and our schedules and in our priorities. Now, again, you might say, hey, I'm too busy. You don't know my life. My job is demanding. Or I'm, I'm a single parent. And that's exhausting. Or... Uh, you know, married, and we have kids, and we have little kids, and so juggling their schedules and sports and their commitments and things we got to drive them to, that's a lot of work. And you're right. Those are time-consuming endeavors, everything you just mentioned there. Well, let's think about this relationally. Again, John Mark Comer, great example where he talks about the illustration of a marriage and essentially says, hey, if your marriage is less than ideal, your marriage is struggling and your spouse comes to you and says hey we really need to spend some more time together like can we just you know 30 minutes a day at least just checking in maybe can we establish a date night can we spend some time together on the weekends and if you were to say to that request sorry I'm too busy all the while spending what however many hours a week on Netflix or watching TV or shopping on the internet or playing fantasy football or whatever it is that you do, right? Anyone sensible who looked at that situation would say, well, you're really not too busy. You're just spending your time on other things. Right? That's true for all of us. We all have the time. It's just a matter of where will we spend our time. And so if we were to look at the situation with a spouse and a marriage, we'd say, well, okay, either you're too busy to have a spouse or you need to rethink your schedule and rethink your priorities or you're on your way to a divorce, right? And so with the Lord, is our relationship with Jesus any different? Relationship with the Lord, like any relationship, requires time, investment. And the solution is not just to wait for a day 25 years from now when we're not busy anymore. The solution is to say, I'm going to prioritize my schedule and evaluate where does my time go? Again, is it, is it TV? Is it, is it 
reading? Is it on my phone? Is it engaged in hobbies or traveling or whatever it might be? Not necessarily bad things. But if we say we're too busy for Jesus and spend, you know, countless hours in those areas, then we need to evaluate that. Because Jesus in verse 15 and verse 17 shows us he's alone with the Father. He's in prayer. He's not with his disciples. He withdraws. And so the simple application for us, very simple, make time in your schedule to be with God. It's really not complicated to say this is a priority, and so I'm going to spend time. Again, maybe it's in the quiet of the morning before the day gets going. Maybe it's later at night if you have little kids and after the kids go to bed. Maybe it can be, again, shorter during the week and it'll be longer on the weekends. Maybe it's, again, 15 minutes here. Uh, maybe you're able to spend, you know, 30 minutes, an hour a day. I don't know what your life looks like. But the idea is simply find a quiet place, open your Bible, reflect, pray, see what comes up in your heart in those moments, see what the Lord might be saying to you through his word. And again, I don't say this or bring this up as like a guilt trip. I don't want to beat you over the head with this or make, make you feel bad, but this is a, a key to a healthy walk with the Lord. We all need this time. This is a key to experiencing peace and joy, depth of relationship with God. And I encourage you to, to make that time. Now, the story continues. <clears throat> Verse 18. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So as the disciples are going on ahead, verse 18 tells us what, a storm comes up. Storms were common on the Sea of Galilee. They were, they still are, even Today, and so the storm climbs up against the disciples as they're traveling along the water. And side note here, side note, the waters get rough, you notice that. But also notice that the disciples are exactly what they're supposed to be. See that? Jesus sends them on ahead, sends them across the water. Mark chapter 6 makes that quite clear. And so... Don't think that rough waters are necessarily a sign that you're not where you're supposed to be. Sometimes you're exactly where you're supposed to be, and the waters get rough. And it's not because you've disobeyed the Lord. It's not because you're going the wrong direction. Sometimes that's part of the story. Side note. Verse 19. What do you see? We see this miracle. Jesus approaches the boat. He's walking on the water three or four miles into their journey. They look out and they see Jesus approaching the boat, not like in another boat or on like a paddle board or being pulled along like on a wakeboard behind a speedboat. No, he's walking on the water. It's like strolling across it as we would walk across the sidewalk. So the first question comes up is, what? (laughs) Who is this guy? Who in the world can walk upon the waves, walk upon water. That's not normal, right? What happens when you step out of a boat? You you go down into the water. You you can't walk across it, right? We can't go track star across the bay over to Crockett or over to Alcatraz, right? 
beneath a boat. But Jesus is walking along the water. Who can do that? The Bible has a really clear answer for who can do that. The Old Testament was quite clear. It was God who could do that. God can do that sort of thing. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Job speaking of the Lord. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Who can walk on the water? God alone. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, through your footprint, or though your footprints were not seen. God can do this. Who was it that hovered over the waters of creation in Genesis chapter 1? The Spirit of God. Who was it that parted the sea in the Exodus narrative as the people were led to freedom? God. Who has the power to do these things? God. And so Jesus, once again, is showing us, demonstrating for us that he can do things that only God can do. That he is God himself. This is one of several signs we've seen throughout the book of John. I think we have a chart here that shows uh, some of the, again, the gospel of John will use that language, a sign. Jesus gave them a sign to show who he party go, he was about. And so we've seen several so far. Uh, water into wine in chapter 2, keeping the wedding party going. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. He heals several people. He feeds the multitude last week at the beginning of chapter 6. He's walking on the water here in the middle of chapter 6. There's more to come. More healing. And of course, uh, verse, excuse me, chapter 11, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And of course, his resurrection to come. So in various ways, Jesus is showing us who he is. His authority, his sovereignty, his power over the created world, doing things that, again, only God can do. Now, we, we see not only in his actions these claims to deity, but we see in his words as well. What does he say in verse 20? The, the disciples are afraid. He's walking on water. Verse 20, he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, the original Greek here that's translated, it is I, is the Greek phrase, ego a me, which grammatically could be translated, it is I, like a simple way to identify yourself. Hey, it's me, which is how we see it translated here in the NIV. But also, these are the exact words that we find in section Old Testament from Exodus chapter 3. If you remember Exodus chapter 3, this really important section of the Exodus narrative where uh, Moses sees the burning bush, right? God speaks to Moses, calls Moses out of the burning bush and sends him back to Egypt and says, hey, I got a job for you. Here we go. And a part, in part of that discussion, Moses says to God, basically, wait a second, if I, uh, or, or, excuse me, if people ask who it is that sent me, like what's your name? What should I tell people? Who should I tell people you are? What should we call you? And it's there that God says, tell them, I am has sent you. Ego a me. Now Jesus, notice that, here on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the waves, identifies himself and says what? Ego a me. It's me. The I am. The God of the burning bush. Here with you now. Now, again, some commentators would 
say, well, no, maybe, but, but, you know, he could just be identifying himself, hey, it's me, which that's grammatically possible. But I, I would argue, given the context, given what we're seeing with him walking on the water, given the surrounding events in the book of John, and the fact that in a few chapters, in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to, again, use the ego a me language to say, hey, I am the I am, makes a clearly uh, divine name there. It makes sense to make this connection. Jesus is showing us and telling us who he is. He's God himself. And so a simple takeaway from this is we, through faith in him, have the joy of knowing, walking with the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of the land and the sea. And and think about this. For the Jews, like in the ancient world for the Jews, the the sea was uh, the realm of chaos was the realm of uncertainty, was a scary place. The land was safe and secure. Uh, the ocean, the seas, uh, the storms were, were chaotic and unpredictable and provoked fear. It was a place that not a lot of them wanted to be. And so think about that. For the Jews, they had this, this fear of the depths of the ocean and the storms and the chaos and the unpredictability that it held. And here we see Jesus walking with all of that right under his feet strolling along like we would upon a sidewalk, showing his power, showing his authority. So friends, if you're here, if you're going through a storm today, you're fearful. If you worry about the chaos or uncertainty of the future, I hope that you would take comfort in seeing the Lord Jesus walking on the sea. Showing his power over all the chaos, all the uncertainty, all the unpredictability that it holds. Which brings us, once again, to a point of decision. Right? The point of these signs in the book of John that they're presented, Jesus is showing us who he is so that we would respond in the right way. We're all brought to this place of decision of what will we do with Jesus. Will we honor him as Lord? Will we receive him? Will we worship him? Will we bow down before him? Recognize him as Lord and Savior and King and shape our whole lives around him and his ways? And here's really the question. If, if Jesus isn't our authority, we will not serve him and honor him And the question becomes, again, what is our authority? What's the grid that we use to make decisions in in our life, to to evaluate what we value, what we prioritize? If it's not Jesus, again, Tim Keller makes this helpful distinction, saying a lot of us can mostly be put into kind of two different categories in terms of how we understand authority and decision-making in kind of a more just kind of general culture if you come from a traditional culture, often maybe a religious kind of institutional upbringing, then a lot of your understanding of authority and decision-making comes from uh, what will honor my family, what will honor my tribe, what will please my um, community, right? I have this commitment to my people, to my community, to this way, and I'm not just kind of free to break uh, from that and go do my own thing. And so I serve my community. I want to honor my parents, right? A lot of it's in a traditional culture, upbringing will land in that place. Uh, But a lot of us, we know, right, especially in the Western world, 
don't as much jive with that approach to life, but often are driven by what? By the self, right? Not about your tradition or your family. It's kind of, we're taught by um, Disney movies, right? To say, hey, it doesn't really matter what my family says or what my upbringing tells me. I'm going to go do my own thing. I got to like follow the dreams that are deep in my heart, discover who I am and go and like self-actualization. And that's kind of how we decide our values and priorities. That's the grid that we use to filter our decisions, okay? So some of us land in that camp. It's like, it's really just, you're the authority. It's about you and what you want. And some of us say, well, if we're from a traditional upbringing, it's about, you know, what your family wants or what the authority figures in your life, whether it's a, a priest or a rabbi or whatever. That's not, but Jesus, notice, Jesus is showing us a third way. A way that's not uncritically, uh, you know, tied to tradition necessarily, but it's also not just, hey, about freedom and go do whatever you want, whenever you want, because we're not necessarily authorized to do that, and we'll just make a wreck of our lives, right, as we do. Uh, but there's this third way of seeing Jesus as our authority. As a Christian, that's what it comes back to, right? If we claim to follow Jesus, be disciples of Jesus, we are saying he is our king, He's our master. We're going to do things his way. We're going to obey his word. And even if I come across some things that I don't understand at first, or maybe uh, don't jive with my upbringing or what I like at first, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him on that. And I'm going to obey him. If we're following Jesus, that's, that's what the journey is going to look like. And that's going to be, uh, there's going to be pressure points, points of tension for us in different ways and on different topics based on who we are and what our upbringing is like and what culture we're a part of. Jesus is going to mess with all of us. He's an equal opportunity offender, okay? Um, So we all have to come to terms with that. But that's the bottom line is we will go the way of Jesus and obey him in his way. Because what? Again, he shows us his. He is. In these miracles and these signs, walking on the water, he's showing us who he is. He deserves Nothing less than our full devotion. Amen. And the other piece, again, notice in his statement in verse 20, he said, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples were afraid. They looked out. They didn't know what they were seeing. Right? They're like, what is happening right now? And they're fearful, and Jesus comes with a word of peace to his friends and followers, and they receive him into the boat. So I want to encourage you, again, if, you're here this morning, and you're hearing the invitation of Jesus. I want to invite you to take a next step. And that next step's going to look different depending on who you are and where you're at in your walk with the Lord. For some of us, it would mean, hey, just like I want to uh, show up to church a little more, right? I want to I I come back and kind of hear what this Jesus thing is about. I want to keep checking this out. That, that could be a next step. A next step could be we have these resources called a gospel intro packet where we just would love to get that in your hands and uh, through the course of about 30 days, it's kind of a, a self-guided thing where you'll do some reading and some reflecting about who Jesus is and what the truth of the gospel is. And so we'd love to get uh, that resource into your hands. If you're like, I, I think I kind of just want to go back to basics and need to, you know, I'm returning to faith or I've never really explored this Jesus stuff before, that'd be a great place to start. Come see me after the service. We'd love to get that gospel intro packet into your hands. Uh, for some of the Lord, maybe it's baptism, right? Maybe you have put your faith in Jesus uh, you've been walking with the Lord for some time. Consider yourself a Christian, uh, but, but have never taken that step of baptism. The Lord calls us to be baptized. And so if you haven't been baptized, 
would you consider taking that step of faith of publicly identifying your life with the Lord? I would love to talk with you about baptism. Uh, if you write that on your connection card too, we could follow up with you uh, this week and beyond about what baptism looks like here and how that goes. So I just, the invitation is to take a next step. Uh, and if you're at the point of faith where you're like, I don't think I've ever believed in Jesus before, I want to surrender to him and put my faith in him fully as Lord and Savior. We'd love to talk with you about that next step. Now, notice there's one other thing in verse 21. It gets, it gets kind of uh, fun here in verse 21. Notice, notice what happens. It says, then they're willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Okay, so first, I'm, not, I'm really curious about what the dialogue was like when Jesus got into the boat. Like, was it just stunned silence? They're in awe. Their jaws are dropped. Like, what? just happened? Do they have like a ton of questions? Like, geez, can, how did that happen? What, how do the metaphysics work? I don't understand. Were they like high-fiving and chest-bumping? Like, that was awesome, Jesus. I don't know. The Bible, it doesn't tell us. The details aren't there, but it, it, I imagine that moment was pretty special. And what? Notice too, in verse 21, this really interesting thing happens. What does the text say? Jesus gets into the boat, and what? Immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Okay, so they're out on the sea. Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately, they're at the shore. See that? I remember when I first heard this story, I was like, what is going on? Like, is the Bible teaching teleportation here? Is this all of your, you know, sci-fi dreams coming true here in John chapter 6? Teleportation. Hear me, a handful of scholars will, will look at this text and say, that's exactly what's happening. It's a second miracle. We had the walking on water, and now we have he gets in the boat and miraculous transportation to the shore. I think that's a very, very possible, probably even likely reading of the text. It seems most straightforward. That's kind of what it says is happening. Now, another group of scholars will say, well, the word here that's translated immediately could be translated, you know, in other places, like very quickly or soon or kind of right away. This is kind of what happened Next, And so it's not about miraculous immediate transportation to the shore, but it's simply pointing out, hey, without delay, you know, very quickly storm was gone and they reached their destination. Okay, so honestly, I think you could make the argument either way. I personally lean a bit more towards teleportation, Jesus in John chapter 6, but that's for you. So on your way home today or at lunch, talk with, you know, your friends, your spouse, or your family. So teleportation, John chapter 6, what do we think about that? Okay, that's a little, you can chew on that. But either way, here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus brought the disciples safely to shore. That's the point. He got them where they were going. Here's the parallel in Psalm 107. It's so, so cool. Psalm 107, verse 29. He stilled the storm to a whisper. Again, this is Old Testament. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired Stilled the storm, the waves grew calm, and he brought them safely to shore. Jesus is the one who will bring us safely to shore. Reminds me of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So what is the great Christian hope? What's our hope? The hope of the gospel that it holds out for us. It's not necessarily about temporary fixes, changes in circumstances, although Jesus does 
break into our lives and transform us now, but it's this hope of what? Eternity with the Lord. This hope that we have a secure homecoming. That we will reach that shore. Jesus will lead us. We'll be with him in his kingdom, in his house, feasting at his table forever. And so as Christians, we don't have to worry about uncertainty of will we make it? Will we be accepted? Will we be received? In Christ, the answer is yes. Our homecoming is secure. He brings us safely to shore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. Again, it's all about what he has done for us. It's not about jumping through the hoops, you know, ho- hoping your good deeds outweigh your bad, working for it, earning the favor of God, performing about simply receiving the gift of grace, the gift of God's love, what he's done for you in Christ. So we are a future-oriented people, right? We look forward with great hope, no matter how dark or difficult or scary things may be now. Our future is secure. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we worship you as your people we're, just, we're in awe of you, your power, your majesty, your beauty. You are our king, you are our savior. And so we, we've seen in the text who you are, what you've done. And, and we, we worship you, we bow before you. We say there's no one like you. So we commit ourselves once again to living life your way. To seeking first your kingdom. We repent of the ways we've tried to be our own God and Savior. The ways that we've thought we have a better way of doing things. Lord, forgive us. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your death, your shed blood, and your resurrection, which cleanses us from our sin, purchases purchases us, You've redeemed us, given us new life and a new identity as your children. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.